My name is Jeff Harden. I'm a professor here at UW-Madison, and I'm also a Genevan. And uh, Kyle, I want to especially thank you for a reminder. I was baptized in just the same way when I was a middle schooler, and uh, it was a reminder to me of the incredible faithfulness over the last 46 years since that happened uh, of uh, Christ's mercy and work in my life. So thank you. I'm really here to uh, read our scripture passage for today, which is found in Jeremiah chapter 1, which is on page 609 in the Black Bibles that uh, you, you might have uh, received when you came in this morning. Before we read together, though, please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word, to study it, to encounter it. We pray for Pastor Jim that you would fill him with your spirit. Give him words to say that we need to hear. And through your Holy Spirit working in our hearts, help us to respond. Lord, we often feel that we are in the same situation as Jeremiah, that truly we don't know how to speak. Help us to remember that you go before us and that you can help us to speak to those to whom you have sent us to speak whatever you command of us. Help us not to be afraid, but to rest in you and to know that you are the living God. We lift these things up in the name of Christ. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of King Josiah, son of Ammon of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of King Zedekiah, son of Josiah of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a boy, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot tilted away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north disaster shall break out on all the inhabitants of the land. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, 
So I've never had this happen before, where the, the scripture reading I planned to, to preach on isn't the one that we've just read. I'm, I'm not sure what quite to do with that. Maybe God has a different plan in mind for today. And I'm sure it's not Jeff's fault. It's actually, I checked, it, it's, he read what's printed in the bulletin. I'm, I'm sure the error is mine. Uh, uh, however, um, I think we're going to have two scripture readings, and they actually fit uh, really well together, thankfully. Uh, the, the other, our, our second scripture reading today, you know, many churches have more than one, uh, comes also from the book of Jeremiah. Uh, it's uh, Jeremiah chapter 29. You'll find it on page 638. And what Jeff read sort of sets the context of this great cataclysm that was going to come upon the land of Israel, the invasion of, of the nation of Babylon. And what we hear in this passage today uh, is a letter that Jeremiah writes uh, to some of the people who had been taken into exile. And what I'm going to read, actually, I'm going to read chapter 29, verse 1, and then I'm going to skip to verse 4 and read 4 to 14. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me, if you seek me with all your heart. I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. One of my favorite short short stories is called Babette's Feast. It was written in 1950 by Karen Blixen and published under the name, the the pseudonym, Isaac Dennison. It was also made into a, a truly beautiful movie in 1987. And at the center of the story is the woman, Babette, who has gone into exile 
of fleeing revolutionary violence in late 19th century France. And she comes to a small town in Norway seeking shelter. And there she's taken in by two aging sisters. And these two sisters are a part of a, of a, 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 a religious community, a congregation, a congregation started by their father, who was uh, this uh, leader of this very fervent religious community form of, of pietism. But since his death, the community has slowly become filled with disunity, a, a lack of forgiveness, a bitterness, a complaining about one another. And uh, Babette becomes a servant and cook in the, the sisters' home. After she's lived with the sisters for 14 years, they decide to celebrate the, the 100th birthday of their deceased father. And around the same time, Babette comes into some money. Every year, she was sent a, a lottery ticket from France, and she wins 10,000 francs, uh, just an enormous sum of money at the time. And Babette convinces them to let her throw a feast in their father's honor. Now, for her, it is an act of gratitude for their hospitality. And the sisters are very opposed to the, the extravagance, but they figure that she'll be leaving soon with her newfound wealth. And so they, they agree. And what Babette does is she, she proceeds to put on this amazing French meal for the, the 12 remaining members of this elderly community. And as the, the community gathers around her table, something remarkable happens. Uh, the meal becomes a time of, of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of, of new life, and peace for this fractured, broken community. Now, why do I tell the story of Babette's feast? Well, because in this Easter season, we're reflecting on what it means to be a community that believes Jesus is risen from the dead. And we've been saying that because he is alive, there is hope for renewal in every area of our lives and of our society, just like those who enjoyed Babette's feast. And Mike and I have been considering some different areas in the last few weeks, community and creation, and today we want to consider culture. Remember, Babette was a, a woman in exile. And this is exactly how the New Testament tells Christians to think about themselves. Pastor Mike opened our service today uh, with words like that from 1 Peter. As a people in exile who long for their true home. This is how the New Testament invites us to think. But not just people in exile, but people who are like Babette, called to be agents of hospitality and healing and hope wherever they are. So this is what we want to consider today as we consider our scripture readings from Jeremiah. What can we learn from Jeremiah's prophetic word to the Jews in exile. Three things. The, the experience of exile, the response to exile, and the hope in exile. And the context of this, this passage that we read from Jeremiah 29 is very important for us to understand. Now, Jeremiah was this Jewish prophet who lived in this, 
in the midst of one of these most turbulent periods in the history of the Old Testament. The great Middle Eastern superpower of the day, Babylon, had been knocking on Jerusalem's door for several years, and during this time, there were actually three waves of attack upon the city, and after each one, a deportation of people uh, from Jerusalem. They bring some people back to Babylon, and they leave some behind. And, and in between these times, there's some communication that could take place between Jerusalem and uh, the exiles in Babylon. And what we heard today in, Jeru in Jeremiah 29 is this letter written in 588 B.C. after the second deportation and, and, and before the, the city and, and the temple are, are crushed for good in, in 586. Now, the Babylonians at this stage had taken the, the elite of the nation back to Babylon, nearly a thousand miles away. The king and royal family, the priests, the local officials, uh, the skilled craftsmen, craftsmen sort of the, the leadership team, the executive team of the nation had been brought into exile. And this was a deliberate strategy on the Babylonians' part. And it, if you think about it, it was brilliant. Instead of wiping out all these people, they allowed them to live, but they expected them to become good Babylonians, to work for the empire, and to assimilate to its culture and to its values. You'd think of the experience of Daniel, who was expected to adopt uh, the culture of the Babylonian court. So this is the context for Jeremiah's letter as he writes to these exiles. The people in exile had a big problem. They had to figure out how they should live in this difficult new situation. And there was a lot of debate about it. If you read the previous chapter, Jeremiah 28, you'll hear about another prophet named Hananiah. And he was declaring to the people that if they would just remain separate from the Babylonians and maintain their Jewish identity, in just two short years, God would bring them back to Jerusalem. And we hear Jeremiah's response uh, to prophets like this in verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. Jeremiah says it won't be two years that they are in exile. It will be 70. He says, settle in for the long term. Build houses. Plant gardens. Get married. Give your children in marriage. Now, this was deeply challenging for these people. Why? Because he was calling the people to walk a narrow path between two ditches. On the one hand, he calls them to, to reject assimilation to the, the Babylonian culture. The, the temptation to assimilate was great. The Babylonians were not just uh, superior militarily, but they were also culturally superior. They had the cutting-edge art and science and philosophy of the day. It, it, 
was easy for conquered peoples to be pragmatic and to say to themselves, well, the best thing is just to adapt for the sake of my own future, the future of my family, uh, even if it means being absorbed into this dominant culture and losing our distinctive identity. And Jeremiah says, no, they must maintain their identity. He calls them to, to pray to the Lord, their God. But on the other hand, Jeremiah also calls them to reject a, a, a kind of tribalism. And tribalism can take two different forms. There, there's a passive kind of tribalism and there's an active tribalism. You know, an active tribalism is, is aggressive. You fight a culture war to preserve your values and your identity. A, a, a passive tribalism is, is more isolationist. You, you retreat from the culture around you to hide among people who think like you. You know, and these, these temptations are still very much with us today as we struggle with what it means to be followers of Christ in, in our culture and in our world. Uh, some of us are, are tempted to deny our faith when it contradicts the orthodoxies of the modern world. Others of us fall into a, a tribalism, whether that's engaging in a, in a culture war or retreating into a safe community. Whichever way you go, this experience of, of exile, it reveals your heart and, and what really matters to you. If it's your pleasure and comfort, then, of course, the, the commands of the Bible will have to go when they get in the way. If what really drives you is your reputation and, and your career advancement, what others think about you, then you'll be afraid to share your faith uh, with your non-Christian friends and colleagues. Jeremiah offers us a, another way, a, a path between these two extremes on either side. He offers us an, an, another way of, of living and being in the world. Uh, we see it in verse 7, where he tells the people, seek the welfare, the, the, the shalom, the, the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. As I've said, Jeremiah is clear that the people must maintain their identity as God's people. They're, they're to pray to the Lord. They are God's people in exile. But at the same time, Jeremiah commands them to seek the peace of the city, to pursue the common good, Babylon, he's saying, should be a, a better place because they are there. This is the kind of exile mindset that the New Testament commands for Christians. Consider 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. As foreigners and exiles live such good lives among the pagans that they see your good deeds and glorify God. Or the Apostle Paul in Romans 12. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
The early church put this teaching into practice in, in powerful ways, despite their persecution and oppression and opposition. Let me just give one illustration. In the second century AD, a Roman official named Diogenetus wanted to know about this new Christian movement that was spreading across the Roman Empire. And in response, he received a letter from a believer describing the lifestyle of Christians to him. And this disciple wrote this. Christians are not distinct from other people by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some strange way of life. In their dress, food, and general manner of life, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to live in, whether it is Greek or foreign. Yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as if they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but suffer hardships as if they were aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, a homeland, wherever it may be, is like a foreign country. Like other people, they marry and have children, but they do not cast them out. They share their meals, but do not share their wives. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They are obedient to the laws, and yet they live on a level that transcends the law. So friends, what will they write about us? Will they say there is something extraordinary about their lives at Geneva Campus Church? What does extraordinary look like? Well, a few things stand out to me in this letter from the second century. First, the, the early Christians weren't weird in this sense. Right? They didn't follow some strange way of life, this writer says, in their dress or their food or their general manner of life. They followed the customs of whatever city they happened to live in. That's not what made them weird. What made them weird was not their clothing or their way of talking or their music. It was how they treated each other and people outside the church. They lived counterculturally when it came to sex. They shared their meals, but not their wives, he says. They did not cast out their infant girls to die by exposure. Instead, they adopted children. They were good citizens. In times of plague, they cared for their sick neighbors. And they, they did all these things, not in a prideful or, or self-righteous way, but with a humility that, that was noticeable. This is what it means to, to seek the peace of the city. It, it means to, to move towards places of need. Accepting that you will be different as a follower of Jesus, but committing yourself to loving as he loves, gently, sacrificially, graciously. For the Jews in Babylon, Jeremiah's letter could not have been an easy message to receive. It would have been a lot easier, wouldn't it uh, have been, to, to just keep their distance for two years and then go back to Jerusalem where it was culturally safe. But this is not what God has in mind for his people in exile. The truth is that it's in exile that we often learn the lessons that we most need to learn. How to wait, 
how to listen, how to grieve, how to trust, how to love. So when Jeremiah commanded the exiles to seek the welfare of, of Babylon, yes, he, he was challenging them. But there was one last thing that we, we must see. He also gave them a promise and, and a hope for the future. Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Jeremiah gives them a, a hope in exile, a hope that empowers them to be God's people in that place, a hope of what God would do for them. And this hope is, is essential to seeking the peace of the city. You know, without it, you'll either be too full of fear or self-centeredness to, to love people who are, who are different from you. But not everyone sees it this way. Some look at hope like this, and they say, isn't this just an escape? Just something to, to make these poor, suffering people being oppressed and dominated by this great power just feel better about themselves for a time? At our Howard Thurman conference uh, earlier this week, it was mentioned that the African-American spirituals have sometimes been controversial for just this reason. You know, these songs arising out of the slave experience, like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, A, a Balm in Gilead, uh, these have sometimes been critiqued as too otherworldly, especially with their reference to a, a literal heaven and judgment, to crowns and, and thrones and the robes that singers would wear when Jesus returned. The argument is that songs like this make people passive and, and submissive, well, in 1947, Howard Thurman gave a lecture at Harvard about this. And Thurman argued that, on the contrary, Christian beliefs about the new heavens and the new earth and, and the judgment day actually deepened the African-American capacity to endure injustice. Here's what he said. The facts make clear that this sung faith did serve to deepen the capacity of endurance in the absorption of suffering. It taught people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that the environment, with all its cruelty, could not crush. These songs enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm a terrible right to live. In his book, uh, Making Sense of God, the pastor and author Tim Keller, he quotes this lecture uh, by Howard Thurman. And he points out that there were many in Thurman's Harvard-educated secular audience who believed that while those images and the spirituals were, were just these wonderful symbols, you couldn't take the idea that, that Jesus was really going to return, that he was really going to judge the world and, and make things right in some literal kind of way. 
And Thurman addressed this directly by arguing that if you can't take this hope literally, it's not a real hope. Keller offers this thought experiment to show why this is so. He says, imagine what it would be like to sit down with a group of 19th century slaves and say this, there will never be a judgment day in which wrongdoing will be put right. There's no future world and and life in which your desires will be satisfied. This life is, is all there is. When you die, you simply cease to exist. Our only real hope for a better world lies in improved social policy. Now, with these things in mind, go out there, keep your head high, and live a life of courage and love. Don't give in to despair. Is that a hope for suffering people? You see, the Christian hope is very different. It's more than an optimism that things will get better. It's a promise. Like the promise of God to his people in exile that he will bring them home. Like the promise that we heard in baptism today that when we trust in Christ, God will forgive and cleanse us. Friends, if you have a hope like this, you can endure suffering the hardest things. But what's more, you can turn away from yourself. You can look to others and you can seek the peace of the city. Here in Madison and wherever God sends you. If Jesus has died and and has risen again, you can go anywhere. You can be the presence of Christ in your classroom, in your neighborhood, in your office. You can stand with those who are suffering. You can forgive your enemies and your friends because this hope is real. I began today sharing about Babette's feast, the the story of this exiled woman who becomes an agent of healing and reconciliation through this amazing meal she makes for her friends. There's another reason why that meal was so powerful. You remember how Babette had won this enormous sum in the, in the French lottery. And her friends think that the meal is a farewell before she leaves them with her wealth. But in the end, you discover that she spent everything, all 10,000 francs, on this feast for a dozen people. For her to bring blessing to her friends required sacrifice. It was only at personal cost to herself that she could bring healing and hope to others. Jesus did the same thing. He came to us in our exile, and he spent everything he had. He gave his life so that we might know forgiveness and healing and peace. And through his death and resurrection, he's gone ahead of us into the new creation, and by his Spirit, He's present with us here today at at this table. N.T. Wright puts it like this. He says, At communion, we are like the children of Israel in the wilderness, tasting fruit plucked from the promised land. 
It is the future coming to meet us in the present. This is the joyful feast of the Lord. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, we thank you that you are, are in control of all things, of all history, and of our lives. That you have a purpose and can use even the hardest things uh, for our good and for your glory. We thank you that you are the God uh, who goes into exile to, to be with your people and to bring hope and redemption, healing and wholeness to this world. We thank you for how you've done that in the death and resurrection of Jesus and for the great hope that we have in him uh, for the present and for the future. And we pray that as we gather around his table that we would know your presence, that we would be empowered by your love, and that we would go out from this place to seek the peace of the city where you have put us, to be the presence of Christ wherever we find ourselves, so that you might be known and worshipped and the lives of others might be changed by your grace. We thank you that we can have such confidence that you are at work. So we say together, amen.